Growing up, my mum wasn't into makeup, so I never had anyone to teach me. What was concealer and where did it go? How did you choose foundation? What was powder for? I thought contouring was going on a prison excursion. To help 30 year old me, I decided to go on an Urban Decay makeup stand in John Lewis and paid for a makeup lesson. They explained the basics and now I enjoy putting it on, when I can be bothered at least. Makeup and body painting has been around since before Homo sapiens were boasting about their small brow ridges and endurance running. So let's find out what people and how people have been decorating their bodies. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. I really do love it when I get to include Neanderthals in the podcast. Made out to be violent and simple-minded by popular culture, they have a bad rap, and evidence from archaeology has repeatedly found them to be not much different than our early ancestors. Approximately 50,000 years ago in a cave in modern-day Spain, a Neanderthal discarded a broken shell. In 1985, a team excavating at Cueva de las Aviones in Murcia found an oyster shell containing mineral pigments, hinting that the cave's Neanderthal's residence might have been qualified to work backstage at New York Fashion Week. In 2008, a group of archaeologists led by Joao Zalajo headed to a nearby cave and found an orange scallop shell containing traces of red and yellow mineral pigments. This, this discovery was almost a non-discovery. The undergraduate student that found it was told to pop it in a bag, with Zalajo thinking it to be a fossil that had fallen out of the cave wall. It wasn't until later that they were giving it a clean that they realised that it was a shell and not a fossil. Zalajo was like, wait a second... This is like that oyster shell malarkey going on in that other cave in the 80s, or something like that. I feel like recently glitter has made a comeback, with the youth of today, and just like as in the 90s, they are spraying themselves with a shimmery glittery mist emulating the countless kids who desperately tried to emulate the Spice Girls. It turns out that before Britney Spears, before Christina Aguilera, before 2022 TikTok, the Neanderthals were doing it. We don't actually know if they were definitely using it for body or face makeup, but the fact that there was barely any of it and it was in small little shells sure points to it. I'd like to think that it was part of a young Neanderthal's plan to try and woo a partner. Or maybe they decided to raid their parents' special nighttime cupboard. Maybe they got caught with this precious sexy glitter and a grab of the hand made them drop it and break it, only to be looked at with interest 50,000 years later. I was watching a pretty depressing film the other day. I won't tell you the name because if you do want to watch it, it will be giving you a spoiler. It was set in 1825 in Tasmania, 55 years after Captain Cook landed on the mainland and declared that this land now belonged to the British Empire. The fact that it belonged to the Aboriginal peoples and had been for the past 65,000 years only seemed to cause them the mildest headache. The film follows an Irish ex-con in her quest for revenge against the most horrible man on earth. She is aided by an Aboriginal guide, who is about her age, who dresses in Western clothes. They go through some horrible shit together until they become quite close. There's this scene where he obviously makes a decision to go kill the bad guy, right? He removes his Western clothing and starts to decorate his body with ochre in the dark, with only the light of the fire reflecting off his painted body. It's such a powerful scene and I wanted to find out a bit more about it. Ochre is a naturally occurring earth pigment that can be found in little pockets hanging out in layers of rock. It varies a lot in colour, so you can get pale yellow, deep red, brown and even violet. So about 30,000 years ago, the Aboriginal culture at some point came across this ochre and thought, nice. 
Something equivalent to that, I'm guessing. For the Aboriginal peoples, body painting is not about vanity. It's about communication, religion and culture. They're not just grabbing a brush and going to town and doing whatever they fancy. Each line has a meaning, each dot has a meaning, and this body paint is readable. It identifies which family people are from, what their journey has been, and what their totem is. There are also marks of the ancestral beings that created the landscape and its creatures long ago during the dream time. I just wanted to take a second to try and explain the concept of dream time. I'm going to quote AboriginalArtAustralia.com because I want to make sure that I get this right because apparently it's quite difficult for non-Indigenous people to understand what dream time is. Aboriginals believe that the dream time was way back at the very beginning. The land and the people were created by the spirits. They made the rivers, streams, waterholes, the land, hills, rocks, plants and animals. It's believed that the spirits gave them their hunting tools and each tribe its land, their totems and their dreaming. Aboriginals believe that the entire world was made by their ancestors way back in the very beginning of time. The dream time the ancestors made everything. One important thing to know as well is that there is not one Aboriginal culture. Different groups have varying beliefs and their own traditions. You know what? I absolutely love anything to do with Egyptian women. Some of my favourite Egyptian museum artefacts are to do with beauty. Cosmetic spoons, cosmetic bottles, tweezers, coal pots. They are often so charming. What is a cosmetic spoon, I hear you say? It was essentially a reusable receptacle. I know that sounds wanky, but I don't know what other word to use. It's a spoon-shaped, well, to put in and mix minerals and stuff and then use that to whack makeup on your face. But these don't look like basic bitch tablespoons. Oh, no. In fact, the only thing that's similar is that actual spoon scoopy bit. They come in loads of shapes and sizes and can be carved out of alabaster, which is a pretty boss-ass rock, wood or bone. There's this cosmetic spoon which depicts a swimming woman holding a container shaped like an antelope in front of her. The top of the container was originally attached with a peg that allowed it to swing open. The compartment inside would have held some sort of cosmetic. It's in the Met Museum and is from about 1390 BCE, which is in the reign of Aminotep III. It looks like it was made yesterday and honestly, it is just so cute. Plus the antelope looks like a dragon, which I'm going to pretend it is. I'll put the link in the show notes because I love it and so you must see it. Other cosmetic spoons include a trust duck, a mouse, a dog and loads of variations of humans. They're such beautiful little things. Quite a lot of the following information on Egyptian cosmetics comes from a paper called Facial Cosmetics in Ancient Egypt by Engi El Kilani, published in 2017. The oldest known Egyptian palette used for grinding and mixing cosmetics is over 5,000 years old. Sure, not as old as Neanderthals, but still, older than your favourite bra. We know that they're important because they made it onto the list of funerary goods required for the afterlife. You don't want to go around the afterlife looking like a gopper, do you? I'm sure you don't need me to tell you it was both men and women that wore makeup. For once, it wasn't just the elite that partook in makeup. Even your average nephret was wandering about done up to the nines. The thing that marked you out as a pauper wearing makeup was your cheap ass cosmetic spoon. No swimming women for us. We'd have put on our makeup with a stick. Have you ever stabbed yourself in the eye with mascara? Good raw, it hurts. Imagine smashing yourself in the eye with a splinter covered stick. How the other half live. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? 
It suggests that only half of us are not rich, which seems massively undercalculated. Anywho, back to the Egyptians and their coal makeup. See what I did there? Coal instead of coal. Never mind. So beauty in ancient Egypt was super important. Beauty equals goodness equals perfection. There's a word in ancient Egyptian language used to describe beauty, pronounced nefer, I think. Now that rings a bell, doesn't it? It's only Nefertiti, the famous queen from the 18th dynasty. She lived between 1370 and 1330 BCE, obviously, because we all know the dynasty's off by heart, don't we? She's a subject to that super famous bust found in 1913 with incredible bone structure. Okay, so the first thing I think of when we talk about ancient Egyptian makeup is the eyeliner, right? Big, bold, black and iconic. Col itself is made out of galena, galana, galena, which is lead sulfide. Doesn't sound ideal. It was used on basically all around the eyes, on the lashes, on the brows and on the lids. Under the lids? You get the idea. They were lit for it, and rightly so. In early ancient Egyptian culture, they also threw in a bit of green eyeshadow. Fancy. Soot was very popular, and it's still used today in mascaras, which is pretty cool. Apparently, coal protected the eye from the boiling hot sun rays, as well as acting as a fly repellent. No one wants flies bopping in their face. Something that I've been unfortunate enough to experience recently when I was in a loft looking for bats in my day job as an ecologist. That's an attic for the US listeners. Not only was there bat shit everywhere that I was desperately trying to avoid kneeling in, it was boiling, my hard hat was too big and kept going wonky, and I was sweating. A big disgusting fly kept lazily bopping me in the face which was making me gag. If only I'd had more eyeliner, then I might have avoided the assault. Anyway... It's thought that the eye makeup was applied with wet sticks and your fingertips. Red lipstick is like the lipstick, right? The woman in the red dress in The Matrix, red lipstick. The Rolling Stones logo, red lipstick. Betty Boop, red lipstick. Tim Curry in the Rocky Horror Picture Show even wore it, as did Catwoman, Morticia Adams, Marilyn Monroe, David Bowie. It is iconic. The ancient Egyptians did it first, friends. The whole point of Egyptian cosmetics was to make the wearer look well and healthy, which I guess is not much different to today. Oh, I look tired. I've got dark circles, spots, wrinkles. Better get that shit covered. The lips and cheeks were painted with red ochre stuck to the end of a reed. If matte wasn't your thing and you want a little glossy gloss, then just add a bit of animal fat and slap that on with a spatula or a brush. Upper class ancient Egyptian women wore powder to make themselves look more pale. Pale means that you're rich, so you don't have to go out in the sun all day, which inevitably darkens the skin. This is an idea that will ripple through time and cultures, and is still, unfortunately, prevalent in some cultures. You only have to search skin lightening advert on YouTube, and you can see some absolutely insane adverts. I've literally just watched about five, and it's left me a bit gobsmacked. Do you remember when I talked about Queen Puabi in the Tomb Discoveries episode? She was a queen in Sumeria, which is now modern-day Iraq, around 2600 to 2500 BCE. Queen Puabi's grave contained some mad grave goods, which included a cosmetic container featuring a lion attacking a sheep. Not something you tend to find on eyeshadow palettes today, but I'm sure it was the height of fashion. Her lipstick was stored in cockle shells and was made of white leg... White... <laughs> someone's leg (laughs) it was made of white lead and crushed red rocks 
Also found were cosmetic kits including coal eyeliner, gorgeous little shell containers containing blue copper oxide used for eyeshadow. As you'll know from that episode, hers wasn't the only grave found as it was among around 2,000 others. In some of the other tombs and burials, cosmetic pigments were like a little rainbow, including red, blue, purple, green, white and black. These were found in the tombs of both men and women, as everyone wanted to get in on the action. Just like the Egyptians, the Sumerians coveted the dark coal eyes with the aim to make them look bigger. In statues from the culture, the eyes are made to be bigger than in real life. The big and open eyes signify life, compared to closed eyes, which signify death. I hope no one forgot to take off their makeup before bed and got carted off to the mortuary. The term cosmetics is derived from the Greek word kosmetikos, which means skilled in adorning or arranging. Ugh, perfection. From what I can tell, it seems that the natural look, that most definitely is not natural, was coveted in the ancient Greco-Roman world. If you were to have a little sneak peek in the Greco-Roman noble woman's vanity table, you'd see olive oil, honey, charcoal, white lead and a whole lot of pigments for that little pop of colour. Loads of recipes to lighten skin were knocking about, including ground, o- ground oyster shells mixed with sulphur. It, imagine the smell! I don't know whether pure sulphur smells, but I just had a random flash of the pit of despair from the labyrinth film. You know when they're in that farting swamp? That little fox that rides on his little dog would not be happy about it at all. Way back in the contraception episode, we heard of women using crocodile dung as a contraceptive barrier. That's not the only thing that it was used for. It was used yet again as a facial whitener, and it was suggested that crocodiles ate sweet-smelling flowers while it pootled about on land, which means that its poo smelled, oh, lovely. Which is obviously a total lie. I can't say I've ever smelt crocodile poo, but I don't know how you could get away with a lie like this. As soon as you managed to get hold of the stuff, that fantasy would go right out the window. It seems like you'd be able to smell Greco-Roman women before you saw them. Blush was commonly made from a pigment of roses, poppies, crushed mulberries, dyed chalk or red ochre. Nothing terrifying on the cheeks, at least. If the skin was deemed too unsightly to be fixed by makeup, women would adorn their faces in leather patches cut into shapes such as a crescent moon, cute, to cover blemishes. These beauty patches, also called splenium, were also found to be used by formerly enslaved people to disguise branding. Imagine having a period breakout and having to put on like 10 leather patches on your face and wandering about time like, oh, I just like the smell of leather, don't judge me. I know you're dying to know how they had their eyebrows. No, I hadn't considered it either, but let me tell you this, Frida Kahlo would have killed in ancient Greece because monobrows were all the rage. The Greeks were all about purity. So if you plucked them brows, then you were a vain bimbo. God, it's still prevalent today, isn't it? Too much makeup, you're trying too hard or being a catfish. Too little, and you're a lazy person who doesn't take pride in their appearance. Lame. Anyway, not every woman is blessed with a monobrow, so there are some questionable replacements that could be pulled out of the vanity table. Looks like you've ran out of this solution. So you just have to go over to your neighbour's farm and ask if you can shave one of their oxen. Grab some tree resin on your way back and you're on to a winner. Smack those bad boy eyebrows on and you're off. If there's a distinct lack of available oxen hair, you could always use charred saffron to make your real eyebrows darker. If that sounds too expensive, then you could use soot, fungus or rose petal ash. If you've for some reason not got any of those things available... 
than just crush up some flies. I feel like crushed flies is probably the grossest thing so far. I think I'd probably cover my face with crocodile poo rather than crushed flies. Now you've got your ox hair and crushed fly eyebrows on, your sulphur and oyster shell face powder, your poppy pigment cheeks and your leather patches, it's time to give a bit of attention to your eyeballs, which are a bit boring, don't you think? Grab some lapis lazuli and various other minerals I've never heard of and just smash them in your eye. Make them look massive. Alternatively, you could use an eye wash filled with perfumes to make the pupils dilate. You're ready to face the world, friend. Some of the tribes in ancient Britain survived from 7000 BCE to around 875 CE. The ancient Britons were not one people. They consisted of loads of tribes including the Celts, the Gauls, the Goths, the Towtons, the Picts and the Scots. I don't know about you but when I hear the word woad I go ancient Britons making themselves blue. But then I realised I had no idea what woad even is or where it comes from. Woad is a plant native to the Mediterranean, which was the first what fact that surprised me. Woad seeds have been found in a French cave and have been dated back to the Neolithic. The ancient Egyptians used woad, as well as in Iron Age Europe. It's been grown and used for dyeing Britain up to the 20th century. Sextus Properatius was a Roman poet. He was born around 50 to 45 BCE. Why am I talking about a Roman poet? Haven't I just finished the Greco-Roman section? Yes, I have. But this is the ancient Britain section. Oh, Sextus wrote four books and this is what I had to say about the makeup of the Britons. Now, do you even imitate the Britons? Stained with woad, you crazy girl, and play games with foreign glitter painting your cheeks? Everything's proper form as nature made it. Belgian colour looks foul on Roman cheeks. May there be many an evil for that girl in the underworld who's false and foolish dyes her hair. Get rid of it. I'll still see you as beautiful, truly. Your beauty's sufficient for me, if only you come often. If some girl stains her forehead dark blue, does that mean that dark blue beauty's fine? <sighs> I sit here reading this like, mate, shut the fuck up. I just dyed my hair half pink and half blue, so I really am not the person to take this sort of trash well. I talked about ancient Britons and Wode in the tattoo episode, so it's worth mentioning again. Dominus Julius Caesar said in 50 BCE, All Britons paint themselves with Wode, which turns the skin a bluish-green colour, hence their appearance is all the more horrific in battle. Wode is an antiseptic, so it makes sense for them to have slapped it on before battle. In 200 CE, this bloke called Tertullian wrote a book called De Cultu Feminarium, which translates as The Worship of Women. Sounds like a pretty nice book, right? Wrong. Tertullian was a Christian writer who lived in Carthage, which is now modern-day Tunisia. He wrote this book to tell women how to dress. More relevant to this episode, how to or not to wear makeup. Getting a little theme here of men sort of telling women what they shouldn't shouldn't do didn't you didn't know this was a feminist podcast but it is in this book he wrote that women were the doorway to the devil and the more beautiful a woman was deemed the more susceptible she was to him vanity after all is one of the seven deadly sins so makeup was essentially a direct invite to the horn bearing guy himself 
Rather than adorn themselves with paint, Tertullian said that women should paint their eyes with chastity. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? This sentiment dominated Christian society for centuries and women avoided makeup until the 12th century and instead concentrated on making their hair pretty. We all know about chivalry. Knights going off to the Crusades, writing poems for their love interests, giving them favours at the jousting. Well, it was this period that saw the beauty of women being referred to in a positive light, which slowly started to encourage women to spend a bit of time trying to conform to the beauty standards of the time. They started plucking their eyebrows, but not just a bit, not even just as much as the early 2000s thin eyebrow, but the full on just pluck the whole lot out, mate. You know that what 12th century people also thought was hot? A massive forehead. Yes, women also started to pluck out the front of the hairline to make their foreheads look longer and apparently more elegant looking. Yes, that's all very well. But what about the makeup? Baby steps, people because they were wearing a tiny hint of rose on the lips and cheek. The hate for cosmetics was not quite in the bin yet, and any makeup had to be subtle. In the 14th century, one Geoffrey de la Tour wrote the Book of the Night of... The Book of the Night of La Tour Landry. In it, he includes what happens to vain women in hell. Specifically, when commenting on women who have worn makeup, the devil would inflame her face with burning pitch, oil, tar, grease and boiling lead. Look, Jeffrey, mate, get a fucking life. Once we start to get into 14th Renaissance, makeup starts to creep in a bit more in earnest. Though we get some naysayers like the famous Italian courtier Count Castiglione, what a name, He writes in 1516, Surely you realise how much more graceful a woman is, who, if indeed she wishes to do so, paints herself so sparingly and so little that whomever looks at her is unsure whether she is made up or not in comparison with those whose face is so encrusted that she seems to be wearing a mask and who dare not laugh for fear, of course, it is to crack such as the uncontrived simplicity which is most attractive to the eyes and minds of men were always afraid of being tricked by art. I wonder if this sounds familiar to anyone. How many times have we heard, I prefer the natural look. I prefer women who don't wear makeup, while they share a picture of a woman who is most definitely wearing makeup. And the Instagram famous following, with or without makeup picture, along with the comment, this is why you take a woman swimming on a first date. It'd be crazy to think that some women white, or some men, men or women, whatever, might wear makeup for themselves, not to attract a partner, right? I'm going to go off on a tangent for a minute and talk about leprosy. Bit of a curveball. Or in more specific terms, fake leprosy. Leprosy was a debilitating disease that swept Europe and was endemic by the 11th century. It could cause loss of fingers and toes, gangrene, blindness, collapsing of the nose, ulcerations, lesions and weakening of the skeletal frame. Bloody awful! According to Ambrose Pare, a surgeon living in the 16th century, it had become known that tricksters would use makeup to make them look like lepers in order to beg for money. Here's what he said, which I assume has been translated to modern language. The beggar sat in front of a church with several coins strewn in a handkerchief at his feet. His face was covered with large pustules made of a certain strong glue and painted in a livid reddish fashion, approximately the colour of lepers, and he was very hideous to see. Thus, out of compassion, everyone gave him alms. The artful impostor tightened from beneath his cloak a rag which he had wrapped round his neck so as to make the blood mount to his face. 
After removing the rag, the surgeon washed his face with warm water, which caused all his pustules to become detached and fall off. The beggar confessed he knew how to counterfeit several illnesses and he had never found greater profit in them when he had counterfeited lepers. In Tudor England, ugliness and deformity was seen as a punishment for sinners and seen as the way God had marked out bad people. Anyone beautiful was inherently good and was to be trusted. As well as being bad, ugliness or deformity did a pretty good job at marking someone out as a witch. I will be dedicating an entire episode to witches and witchcraft at some point, but in relation to makeup, it made it even more important. You've really got to hide anything that might mark you out as a witch, something that Elizabeth I kept in mind when she came to the throne in 1558. Her sister Mary hadn't done a great job being the first Queen of England, so let's be honest, she just knocked about burning Protestants. So not only did she have to work extra hard being a woman, she had to show that she could do better than the last woman on the throne. It was really important for her to embody her father, Henry VIII, who, despite being a bit of a nutter, was well-liked by the general population. When she was younger, her pale skin and red hair was praised as beautiful, just like her dad's. When she ascended, she continued to ensure that her face was as pale as a lily, and this was achieved by using white lead mixed with vinegar. Elizabeth herself had also suffered from smallpox, which reportedly 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 left her skin pockmarked which was a big no-no she could not be seen to possess any ugliness whatsoever so she's got super smooth pale skin let's give it a pop by putting on some rouge on the cheeks made out of red ochre or mixing yet more lead and red chrysalisine mercuric sulfide whatever that is and a big red lipstick made out of plaster of paris mixed with alkanet root the whole look was finished with a glaze of egg white just like a pie. I can imagine the faces of the court might have smelled a bit weird. I wonder if they ended up smelling a bit eggy if they went out into the sun. According to the Royal Museum's Greenwich website, Elizabeth was reported to have had an entire inch of makeup on her face, with the poisonous concoction suggested as the possible cause for her death. The side effects include grey hair, dry skin, abdominal pain and constipation. Makeup has been around for men and women for bloody ages. Just like every other fashion, styles come and go. I still know people from high school who never got their eyebrows back after relentless plucking them into a fine line. I despair for today's youth as the makeup style of the early 2000s is well and truly back. Nice try, kids. You won't get me this time. I'm keeping my eyebrows bushy and my lipstick matte. Thank you very much. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it, and rate and review wherever you listen. Thank you to everyone who's taken the time to do it so far. It's nice to know that it's not just my mum listening. I've set up a coffee account, and you can find it at coffee.com slash across the ages. Each episode takes about 12 hours to create, and I do everything myself. So if you enjoy the Cross the Ages, then feel free to support me by buying me a coffee. Thank you to the absolute babes that have bought coffees for me so far and a special thank you to my monthly subscribers. If you want some cool merch, you can now buy Across the Ages t-shirts and hoodies by going to acrosstheagespod.com. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore across the ages, or you can shout my name really, really loud. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic, Across the Ages. 